Hey, what's up and welcome back storytellers. Whether you're a longtime listener or this is your first time tuning in, I am so glad you're here. I hope you've had a chance to follow us on Instagram at 88 cups of tea to keep up with our latest posts and fun Instagram stories where we announce new episodes and feature our favorite quotes from our podcast episodes and featured essays. And my favorite part about our Instagram platform is that we host Instagram story takeovers by some of your favorite authors. And talking about featured essays that I mentioned a little bit earlier, we've been publishing new featured pieces from authors over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com. Most recently, we released articles from Brittany Morris, author of Slay, where she breaks down the balance between writing too much and writing too little, how to protect your time, and how to throw away that guilty feeling of not doing enough. And our most recent article is written by the Grief Keeper author Alexandra Villasante, where she writes about how different novels require different writing styles and her own personal journey to becoming a hybrid writer. Head over to 88cupsoftea.com to read their articles and get some inspiration and motivation for yourself. And a fun bonus, you also get to download the writing prompts they created exclusively for our storytellers. Now on to today's episode, I am so excited to share that today's conversation is brought to you by Epic Read. Our guest, Jasmine Kaur, is a writer, illustrator, and spoken word artist exploring themes of feminism, womanhood, social justice, and love, acts as a mean of healing and reclaiming identity. As a writer, Jasmine honors the powerful human connection experience through storytelling and the common ground found through our diverse narratives. Her poetry has been shared by Jennifer Lopez, who used Jasmine's poems during a performance at the American Music Awards, and her poetry has also been shared by Tessa Thompson, Blake Lively, Tracy Ellis Ross, and many other popular entertainment artists. Jasmine was also named the Tempest 40 Women to Watch this year in 2019. Her debut poetry and prose collection, When You Ask Me Where I'm Going, releases on October 1st, and her book tackles many topics necessary in today's current climate, including undocumented immigration, sexual assault, mental health, love, liberation, and resilience. In our conversation, we talk about Jasmine's love for story and creating representation through her art. We also talk about how she uncovered her inner authentic voice, ways to recognize when you're holding back and self-censoring your writing voice, and how to amplify your vulnerability so it flows naturally in your writing. Further into our conversation, we discuss her highly anticipated debut, When You Ask Me Where I'm Going, and talk about how and why she formatted the book structure the way she did. I'm also thrilled to share that Jasmine gave us a powerful poetry reading, so be sure to keep your ears out for that. I was left with goosebumps all over my arms. It was so beautiful. After you listen to our episode, head over to our Instagram at 88cupsoftea because Jasmine will be taking over our Instagram stories on Monday, September 30th. Okay, now let's dive right in. Hey, storytellers. I am so excited to have Jasmine Core with us today. I'm so pumped about this. Jasmine, how are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm so good. I am thrilled to get chatting. And why don't we kick it off with your earliest memory of storytelling? So immediately, a memory from the first grade came to mind, as you said that. Um, I remember in the first grade, I wrote a play that had to do with something about Hawaii. I'd never been to Hawaii in my life, but I'd written a play about Hawaii and I presented it to my class. And that is the only memory I have of this writing, but I remember writing it on a very large piece of cardboard and just presenting it to the whole class and feeling very proud of myself. 
perhaps was it reading that first got you into the idea of telling stories or was there a lot of oral storytelling happening at home? I think it was definitely like reading at home. I remember when I was super young, my mom would always have picture book for us to read myself and my younger brother. And I, I feel like that's where my passion for writing came from because I just had this beautiful kind of relationship with stories at bedtime that kind of expanded into a passion for reading throughout, you know, elementary school and high school. I, I was the kid who was like obsessed with Harry Potter. Um, as soon as it came out, um, I remember taking my Harry Potter books with me to the grocery store on like family trips, like wherever we were going, I had the book in my hand and I could lose sight of my entire surroundings when I was like lost in the books that I loved. So I think that my writing or my passion for writing definitely came out of reading. I think reading has been a source of so much joy in my life, so much comfort and safety that it kind of felt like a natural progression, if that makes sense, into writing as I you know, entered like high school and university. You being very much a self-starter in getting into stories yourself, what about family at home? How are they with it? Were they supportive? Reading has always been important to everyone in my family. My mom, she's like super proud of the fact that when she was younger, when she was, I think in elementary school, she won like a reading competition in her city, which was a huge deal, I think, and very special because her and her sister were, you know, new immigrants to Canada. Some of the only girls of color at their school to win this was a, it was like a moment of feeling a sense of pride and belonging. So reading has been like a huge joy for like the women of color that are in my family who found a sense of community through storytelling and through stories. So I think that inadvertently that kind of propelled me in this direction. And again, this is interesting because I've actually never consciously thought about this until you just asked me that question right now. So it's really, really cool that you brought that up. Thank you. Do you mind sharing a little bit where in Canada you grew up in? So I was born in Abbotsford. I'm over on the West Coast in BC. So about an hour out of Vancouver. I usually just tell people that I'm from Vancouver because no one knows where Abbotsford is. But it's like kind of a smaller city. It's a farming city. And it's interesting that I grew up here because this is a very polarized city in a lot of ways. There is a huge Punjabi community. I'm a Punjabi Sikh woman. Um, but there's also a lot of tension in our community between white people and people of color. I think that there's a lot of racial bias and prejudice here. So even though there is a huge community of people who look like me in this area, I still tend to get a lot of like glares from strangers, um, stares, people kind of following me with their eyes wherever I go. Just like little microaggressions that are reminders that you are different and that you don't belong, even though I was born here. My community specifically definitely plays into like the way that I tell stories, the stories that I want to prop up. Because like I said, I grew up reading, super passionate about reading, but I never, ever saw myself in what I read. I never saw girls who look like me in the stories that I read. I never imagined that a girl who looked like me could be in a story because I'd never seen it before. I think growing up, constantly being reminded that I'm different was a reason for me to get into writing in the first place because it was a way of me being able to say, I know that I'm different, but I'm going to celebrate it. I know that 
um, I draw your attention, but I'm going to give you a great reason for me to draw your attention. And I'm not going to shy away from the reasons that you want to diminish me. Am I right in guessing that you did discover this at a super young age, that you were very aware? I think so. I think that I live in a world that doesn't let me forget that I'm different um, and never let me forget, unfortunately. So I feel like growing up in Abbotsford, I was very hyper cognizant of the fact that people kind of perceive me in a different way because of my Sikh identity. Because as part of my faith, I choose to tie a turban at this thought, um, which represents, you know, my human equality. Um, but people don't really understand that. And they have preconceived notions about women who have headscarves or tie um, turbans. I kind of like lived in a world that wouldn't let go of the idea that I could look different and be empowered or couldn't accept that idea. So in high school, I, I tied a smaller form of head covering at a mall. It was a lot less overtly visible, but I found that I was still being stared at by my classmates or people didn't understand who I was. And they like eyes would kind of roam my body throughout the day. And, and I'm like naturally a very like shy introverted person. So like, attention like that was stressful. Like I did not enjoy it at all. And I was always like hyper aware of what was happening around me. And sometimes I just wanted to blend in. But I think that there were more powerful moments where I allowed my frustration and anger at, at that kind of, you know, violent gaze to push me to stand out more. For example, in the 12th grade, I decided to start tying at this thought, um, a very like visible six turban. And it was my way of saying, you've been staring at me, I'm going to give you a reason to stare now. I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm going to find my own comfort within myself. And you're not going to shape whether or not I choose to take on this identity through your gaze and through your judgment. I cannot imagine like just standing up. I know it was like difficult to stand up. So how were you? I think that says so much about you and your character. I'm really mind blown. I think that's something really worth thinking about. Like, I know that in middle school, definitely I I was bullied. I had I had a group of friends that were more like frenemies than friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were friends sometimes and we weren't. And sometimes they were talking about me and sometimes they were trying to kind of sit beside me in class. So it was like a very strange time. I feel like middle school is like the weirdest time for so many of them. And I'm a teacher and I just think middle school is scary. <laughs> I did not enjoy middle school. Just because I feel like all of us were trying to like figure out who we were. And sometimes when everyone is insecure, everyone tries to compensate by pointing to someone else as the target to kind of get the target off of their own backs. So I think that that might be why people in middle school are, can, can suddenly become very mean when they weren't that way in elementary school. But yeah, so middle school was a difficult time. In high school, like in the ninth grade, that's when I kind of started trying to find or actively trying to find like a better group of friends. I remember in the ninth grade, I had a friend who I thought was like wonderful. And I think that in many ways, she tried to be a really good friend to me. But because she just didn't understand my identity and who I was as a sick, she she passed on like microaggressions towards me and towards my identity that I think inadvertently kind of shaped how I perceive myself. So for example, um, I remember one day very vividly at school, um, a girl walked by in the hallway and this girl was also a sick and she also tied a turban. And my white friend, um, who again was very nice in other contexts, very, you know, quote unquote, kindly turned to me and said, Jasmine, you should just not tie that. It wouldn't look very nice on you. It doesn't look nice. I remember like just being like, well, 
I don't really care what you think, but okay. <laughs> like wow. just, just how she felt a kind of like entitlement to like, let me know that like, you know, this, this aspect of what could be my identity isn't good in the society that we live in. And you should just kind of blend in and I'm doing you a favor by telling you. And I remember that that might've been like the beginning of the end of our friendship where I was like, I don't think this is actually a great friend that I've found, even though she might be nicer than the other girls I was with before. So moving on from that, I got really lucky to find like a good group of friends after that in high school who kind of respected me for who I was, um, understood my identity, understood the context through which I live my life. And although they, they were very different in how they, you know, practice their spirituality and um, how they engage their identities, they were always very respectful of, of who I was. And I think that that was huge to me, like being able to have that in high school it creates a very strong foundation for you to continue to develop and thrive. Because I feel like when you're surrounded by folks who don't know themselves, therefore they're kind of trying to pick you apart, it can create a sense of insecurity and confusion in your own self. So in that sense, the rest of high school was pretty good. It wasn't as bad as middle school, definitely. I wish that I had even a fraction of who you are. Just growing up, I feel like I... Probably I wish I could have stood up for myself even more. Even me being in my early 30s, I walk by groups of high schoolers and I feel sometimes a little intimidated. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's like the right word to I use. It's like it's a trauma from our childhood. It's yes, very real. Yes, it's so real. Usually what happens to you in middle slash high school kind of freezes and encapsulates where mm-hmm. your heart will be for the rest of your life. It's very interesting just how much we are affected like that. I also want to circle back to your writing life. You mentioned that you started to write more when you got older, when you started writing more and like really diving in more hours. Is that something that you did purely for expression or you also were aware and conscious that it could be a career as an artist? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, my journey as a writer began with Rumi, reading Rumi's poetry, Sufi poetry in high school. I remember that I was reading this work, not at all thinking that I could ever write, but just being like in awe of poetry and the fact that I could feel so much with, you know, just a handful of words and just being stunned by that and just the, you know, marveling at the beauty of that. I remember in my first year of university, I started getting really passionate about like open mics and spoken word, but again, not as a writer or a performer just as like a fan of other people's work. So I remember there was a spoken word artist named Sunny Patterson, whose poem I listened to like again and again and again. And I just took it in and absorbed it in different ways every time I listened. Along with my friends, like we we got really passionate about open mics and things and we wanted to host an event. Again, not even for us to perform at, but just to bring poets together because we love the art form. And it was when we hosted that, that someone was like, Hey, Jasmine, like, are you going to perform as well? And I, I was like, I don't think that I can. Um, I don't think that's like a skill that I have, but I would love to share this poet, Sunny Patterson's poem because it's inspired me so much. And I remember just like reading her words again and again out loud and then coming to the conclusion that I need to write something myself. And it was literally just me like giving it a shot one day to try to see what I could come up with and then presenting in front of an audience, not knowing how anyone was going to respond that kind of propelled my whole writing practice. So it's wild to think about how it was other people's work that gave me the push to find something within myself that I had admired externally. 
I'm thinking about how very much this relates to a lot of the authors we've had on the podcast. They're in a way practicing and figuring out their voice. They do a lot of reading and sometimes they even read it out loud just to hear the characters. Mm-hmm. When they read books, let's say they love a certain author. They start writing like them for like a year. Then as they realize, they start kind of pulling back and thinking, oh, I don't really sound like this. Something is not feeling right. Then that's how they kind of whittle it down to then find their voice. For you, how did you approach that finding, that discovery of your true inner voice? I feel like because I'm kind of a shy or introverted person, I am the kind of person who will sit there and think about something while everyone's having a conversation about it and just reflect on my thoughts. So I've always had very strong opinions and thoughts on things, but I didn't have the courage necessarily to speak them out loud. So when I started performing, I think what I definitely like gained from listening to other spoken word artists was the ability to speak things aloud and to perform with a cadence and with a sense of rhythm and flow and, you know, the rise and fall of your voice and affecting how you you can convey meaning through your tone. I had the opportunity because I listened to so much spoken word to see the value in being able to perform in a dramatic and cinematic way. And I think that the thoughts were always there. Like I had, I had very strong opinions. Like I said, I just had to find the courage to be able to put them on paper. So I think that my writing has definitely evolved over time. My style has evolved over time, but at its root, what has stayed the same, you know, since I started university in like 2012 to now is that I try to use my writing as a means of getting down to the heart of what I'm feeling and to not hold back any punches or not to hold back any parts of myself to just get down to the source of what I'm trying to say and feel unafraid to say it. Okay. Can I ask you like for the tiny details, which I'm so fascinated by right now is because I feel it's very difficult to unpeel the layers that we have on top of ourselves, right? Because there's the the voice that we learn from society, the voice that we learn from our parents, the voice that we learn from our friends, voices that we usually feel like we are burdened to carry because it's what outsiders outside of our bodies expect from us. When you are going through your writing, are you very, very conscious of when you can recognize when you are holding back or when you're not holding back? Or does that take multiple drafts and multiple revisions and multiple reading out loud to then catch yourself? Okay, so this is something I was talking about with my editor as well. I tend to mind spill when I first start writing because I'm super cognizant of that self-censorship that we do when we're kind of worried about how others will perceive our thoughts or what people will say. So in order to kind of get myself through that, I have to write my first draft of anything as if no one in the world is ever going to read what I have to say, because I feel like, um, like otherwise it becomes like kind of convoluted and diluted with, um, you know, your, your fears about like other people's perceptions. So I write everything as if, Um, no one's ever going to look at it. And then I step back from the piece and try to find what I'm comfortable sharing publicly and what I want to keep just for myself, because I feel like there is some writing that is, is meant for your own, you know, spirit and being, and there is some that is meant to communicate a message with the world. And, and I think that there's value in, in, you know, treating your work in both ways. Um, so when it came to, um, when you asked me where I'm going, Um, I know there are some poems where I placed them in my draft, but I was so nervous about them. 
they were completely honest. They were completely sincere. Frank spoke to, you know, my experience as a god, as a sick woman, as a woman of color. I'm just a woman living in the world. Once I submitted the draft, I was like, oh my God, like someone's going to read this and they're going to have a thousand different thoughts about me and my experiences. And maybe I should just delete this. Maybe I should get rid of it. And I remember um, one of those poems, my editor reading and being like, I love this poem. I want to keep it in the book. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And just kind of letting go of that fear. In the end, I realized that my self-censorship was not serving myself or anyone else. It was harming my work in a way. But I think that it's also super difficult to overcome those hurdles because vulnerability, vulnerability is difficult for like so many of us, but to amplify your vulnerability through, you know, your work, your writing, your performance is something that not a lot of people who are outside of the artist community, you know, understand the intensity of. So it's like a process, I think, of being able to balance what you're comfortable sharing with the world with what you know will add value to public discourse and dialogue. I would love for you to give us a snapshot of when you ask me where I'm going. Yeah. So this is a collection of poetry, prose, and illustrations. I wrote this book in multiple voices. Um, some of the poems are um, written from my voice. Some of them are written from the voices of characters that I've developed. And it also includes a short story that I kind of consider like the manifestation of a lot of the themes in my poems in like a fictional context. Um, so I've included the short story of a character named Gidden who is coming to Canada for the first time as an 18-year-old, coming here for school, but also carrying, you know, the burden of a secret of of a pregnancy out of wedlock. And she comes to Canada and kind of unpacks all of the all of the consequences of her decision to keep her child and what that means for her family and her relationships with her family and her future child and and all sorts of kind of things that swell and expand from this. It's a coming together of so many different experiences. I explore, you know, issues related to racism, immigration, loss, healing, mental health, depression, trauma, feminism, and activism, and everything really that it means to live in my body as a sick woman um, in the diaspora. It's definitely not a single themed book. It deals with everything from what I experienced navigating a racist world to going completely within and trying to unpack my hurt and my trauma and all these kinds of things. So in writing this book, I was super cognizant of the fact that I live in a world that wants to understand me in segments or see me in parts, because I think that when people don't understand, you know, the nuances and complexities of, of the experiences of women of color, they kind of have, you know, limited ideas of what they can experience or feel even. So I didn't want to just write poetry that deals with my experience with racism, nor did I just want to write poetry that, you know, explores my relationship with love and some of those more universal concepts, because all of it together amalgamates my experience and who I am. And I can't be separated in order to, you know, comfort someone else's limited ideas of what I can be. How did you put together, organize the themes in a way where you knew that you, you finally had all the layers all together? I gathered a lot of my work in a folder on my computer in a file. And I kind of saved it in this file of like, you know, things I would love to publish one day, but I'm going to just save it here for now and see what happens kind of thing. So for years and years and years, I had that file on my laptop of my poetry, but just waiting for the right day where I felt like it was time to start putting this together. And 
when I sat down, I think it was December 2017, um, when I sat down and began to kind of compile everything, I had no idea where to start at first, but I knew that I wanted to, I wanted to take the reader on a journey, a journey inwards, especially. So I came up with the concept of different body parts for a very specific reason. So I, this book begins with the chapter, which is named Skin. And this is a chapter where I am discussing everything about my life, dealing with a world that sees me just for my skin. So a world that is seeing me on the outside. Um, so this is a chapter that deals with racism, immigration, um, you know, the sexualization of women's bodies in public spaces, everything that I have to deal with as a woman of color, just walking out in public and being myself in this form. And then the next step is to go into muscle, which takes you a little bit deeper into my inner being. And I imagine muscle as representing, you know, anger and outrage, um, something that comes to life with our adrenaline and something that pushes us to take action. So this is a chapter where you're seeing poems that deal with, you know, healthy expressions of anger at injustice in the world, but also that anger that has been instilled in us maybe through traumatic experiences that doesn't always come out in the most positive way. It deals with every shade of that emotion. And then we go a little bit deeper and we go into lung. And this is a chapter that I always kind of seen as like the emotional pit of the novel. It's a chapter where just in the same way that we reflect on the way that lungs allow us to, you know, breathe and survive, you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to have air come in and out of your body. So a lot of the poems in this chapter deal with those low moments, things related to depression, anxiety, you know, existential crises, all these sorts of things. And then after I take you into that place, we kind of begin to rise up again. And then we go into Nerve, which is my short story. And Nerve is all about bringing things to life. So I feel like when I, when I chose the word Nerve, I was thinking about how through our nerves, we were able to feel and experience. And I think that through this story, I, I just want my readers to take all those feelings that they have from the other organs and from the other chapters and have them manifest in their minds through, through characters. And then we go into heart, which deals with love in all of its different dimensions and aspects from familial love to romantic love to, you know, love for your community and for causes that you're passionate about. And then the last chapter, which is one of my favorites is light. I kind of struggled to figure out how to title the last chapter because I'd gone through all these organs and you're going deeper and deeper into my psyche or my character's psyches. But I wasn't sure how to express what I feel is at the root of a human being. So eventually I chose the word light, even though it's a metaphorical organ, um, because I wanted to express the idea that maybe at the root of a human being, um, despite our trauma, despite all the layers of hurt that exist within us at our deepest level, maybe there is nothing but light there. Maybe we can find that sense of light and maybe we never will, but it's a, it's a journey inward to get to that point. I can't help but like also tying it back to in the very beginning when you were discussing how you never saw anyone that looked like you, a girl looking like you that could be in stories. Now, when you're working on when you ask me where I'm going, did you feel like there was almost all of this responsibility on you because you knew that this book was very much in a way dedicated to the young girl in you that never saw you in books, knowing now that you have the opportunity to finally do that for girls now growing up 
who are looking for the same thing that you were years ago? Yeah, I think that there were moments where I felt almost overwhelmed um, by the knowledge that like I had to get this book right because like you said, like there is nothing like this that we've ever seen, you know, where we see like stories of sick women described in this way. So I think that that pressure existed, but then it occurred to me that that pressure shouldn't exist because there should be so many stories that the the work is spread across all of us. And I realized that like, I needed to do justice to this book on my terms, which means valuing and celebrating all those voices unashamedly, but also knowing that this book is a, is a way to open the door. It's a way to start a conversation. It's a way to continue a conversation so that, you know, sick girls and women are going to come along next and publish their books and add more nuance and more layers to the story. Because I feel like it's absolutely not enough for there to just be, you know, a handful of sick women who, whose voices get to be, you know, discussed in the mainstream. It goes back to, you know, that idea of the single story, which Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie discussed in her TED talk, I believe. This idea that you know, people of color tell their stories or tell individual stories and they are seen as the representative for all stories of people of that community, which shouldn't be the case. It's just the case that, you know, we're living in a world that limits access to our stories and the work needs to be celebrated and amplified in so many different directions so that we're getting a holistic kind of understanding of one another. Let's say you're imagining readers who have your book at home and let's say you see the reader with their mom reading this. There's something that says so much in that because it's generational. What is a conversation you're hoping that your book, when you ask me where I'm going, would spark? Mm, I think I think that there are a lot of poems in this book that deal very unapologetically with issues that have been culturally pushed under the carpet, so to speak. Um, I talk very directly about, you know, situations of domestic violence, abuse, sexual assault. And I think that across so many communities, the conversations about these topics are so limited because of fear, because of lack of understanding of ways of finding support, social stigma. By being very, very candid and frank through the book, I hope that it creates an opportunity for that conversation to continue and you know, for someone to think, hey, Jasmine talked about it. So maybe we can talk about it as well. Maybe it'll be okay if we speak about this. Because I think that this idea that, you know, we need to keep the painful experiences that happen within our households in our households can be very damaging. And I think that we're just realizing the damage now as stories are beginning to come out that have been stifled for so many years. What do you think are the actionable steps that can be placed within systems that have been, I mean, this is hundreds of years of cultural traditions that you're talking about. What do you think are the steps that can be taken to start dismantling all of it? I think that the first step is access. I think that part of the issue why people of color or communities of color, new immigrant communities won't access resources is because of a communication barrier or a language barrier. When we create more spaces specifically dedicated to, for example, South Asian women of color, where there are teams of people trained who not only speak a language, but understand the cultural context that might be providing a barrier for people to seek help, those kinds of things will begin to break down the walls. Cultural context is so important. I think that sometimes 
you know, even when seeking out, you know, counseling support or mental health support, when you don't feel understood by the person that you're talking to, it can limit your desire to continue talking because then you have the, the added labor of trying to explain your whole life to someone when you're already hurting. So I think that it's so important to have representation in different fields of, you know, mental health work, going back to the book, being able to speak these truths through the lens of my culture, my identity. I, I hope that it's like a healing thing for people that are reading. Although it's painful that it resonates, I hope that there is some sort of peace in the resonance, knowing that, you know, you finally see yourself reflected in something. And perhaps that's the reason why you yourself can continue the conversation. What in your book, in When You Ask Me Where I'm Going, do you think does the best job in expressing what you just shared? That, okay, I'm going to find a poem now that speaks just to that. And I know exactly which poem it is, but I didn't flag it. So I'm just going to see if I can find it. Thank you. Okay. Um, So this is a poem called When He Begged Her to Go. Um, And I originally wrote it in character, but in the end, we decided the character would remain anonymous. Trigger warning before I share this piece. This poem deals with issues of domestic violence. We are made to believe that the real violence occurs once we leave. That the swollen lips and aching bruises and voices ringing in our ears are just a warm up for the pain that life would place on our shoulders if we were to run. And it is the seed of this single thought planted ever so carefully that sprouts and flourishes, growing large and tangled around every crevice of my mind that gently wraps itself over my eyes and tells me how it would be so much easier just to stay. So this is a poem um, that was inspired by a mother who is being asked to leave a difficult situation, but is being faced by, you know, the suffocating experience of everything happening in your mind, everything that you've been socialized to see as reality. Those fears of what would happen if I left or what would happen to my children or um, would I be able to financially support myself? These can very often in real life become the reason why women stay in abusive situations. And I tried to kind of imagine all those reasons as like, you know, tangled vines that are that are preventing someone from walking out of the door. And I think that for people who have not experienced situations like this, it can kind of it can feel confusing for them to to not be able to understand why someone would not leave a toxic situation. But for those who are living through it, and I hope that it comes through in the poem, it can be very, very difficult to untangle yourself from everything that you've been socialized into by, you know, your abuser and society sometimes. How are you emotionally writing this? I mean, overall in writing, when you ask me where I'm going, how were you, the traumas that you, you have to revisit, how are you during this process? It's very, very difficult because I think that in the same way you would do when you're acting, you have to kind of dig right into every single feeling to be able to translate on paper what what you are trying to convey. Um, my best friend is an actor and we have these conversations all the time about how there's so many parallels between, you know, the emotional impact that, you know, some of her, her characters take upon her when she enters their emotions and tries to embody their hurt. And the poems that I have to step into sometimes when I write them, 
I think that it's a matter of self-care. It's a matter of being able to step back and check in with your loved ones and check in with yourself and let a poem sit if it's hurting too much and not force yourself to kind of have to dig somewhere where it's painful. I don't think I ever shared this, but like I, whenever I write spoken words specifically, because I am entering into the emotions very directly to channel through the rhythm of my voice, I like literally always cry um, because that's the only way that I can really get into exactly what I'm feeling. And then I have to step back and just like let myself breathe and be okay again. Um, but it always somehow comes out with a spoken word specifically just because it can, I feel like when you're performing or when you're speaking something aloud, it takes on an entirely different embodiment in your mind almost. When you do hear yourself out loud, do you then write with a flow to match the cadence and the tone yeah. that you heard yourself? Okay. So it's not the opposite where you do write things first. You, you hear yourself first and then match the words to the rhythm. Yeah beautiful yeah. oh my gosh jasmine you are incredible thank you so much for sharing so much heart with us and being so fully transparent and vulnerable in this conversation you don't understand the amount of times that you gave me goosebumps and chills on my arms from the honesty and the brevity of just getting straight to the point of what kind of work needs to be out there what stories need to be out there i would love to wrap it up with what are you most excited about right now you know it could be with when you ask me where i'm going if there's things specifically with your book that you're so excited about or anything in general please share with us yeah my book launch which i'm ridiculously excited about and then after that i'm going on tour across california and then um in some cities in the u.s and in canada which i'll be posting about on my instagram page but i think what i'm most excited about is the fact that you know i as an author you spend so much of your time kind of sitting in isolation just with your thoughts and then to be able to send it out into the world however the world perceives it and be able to engage in conversations about this thing that has been so close to your heart for so long is is so exciting and beautiful to me and i literally cannot wait to be able to talk to folks and be able to perform again in front of folks and to have those heavy conversations and those important conversations that we need to have about this book oh my gosh jasmine i am so excited for you i cannot wait to come and see you at one of your shows um yeah. you, you definitely blew me away and i am a fan very excited for your career, your journey, where that takes you. And please, I let everyone know where they could find you and keep tabs on where you're going to be stopping by. And hopefully they could come and visit you and show support and love at one of your tour stops. So can you let them know which social media to find you at? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at Jasmun, J-U-S-M-U-N. I'm also on Twitter at Jasmun, J-U-S-M-U-N, Core, K-A-U-R. And you can find me on my website, Jasmine Gore, J-A-S-M-I-N-K-A-U-R.com. And that wraps up our conversation with Jasmine Core. Thank you so much for your time, Jasmine, and for being so vulnerable and sharing your story and wisdom with all of us. I loved our conversation. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Jasmine on Twitter at JasmineCore. To find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout her entire conversation, head on over to Jasmine's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Jasmine-Core. 
I am thrilled to thank Epic Reads for bringing us today's episode. Jasmine is a poet whose work has been shared by many celebrities, including the one and only J-Lo, who used her poem during a performance at the American Music Awards, along with Tessa Thompson, Blake Lively, Tracy Ellis Ross, and many more. Jasmine's debut book, When You Ask Me Where I'm Going, tackles many topics necessary in today's current climate, including undocumented immigration, sexual assault, mental health, love, liberation, and resilience. Booklist hails this book as ideal for readers mesmerized by the words of Ruby Kaur. Make sure to pick up your copy of When You Ask Me Where I'm Going wherever books are sold and show a fellow writer some love and support. And don't forget to stop by our Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to watch Judgment's Takeover on Monday, September 30th. Have a super productive week and I will catch you next Thursday. Bye.